It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Larry Griffith, CEO of Corporate Chaplains of America. Larry loves God, people, and business, and has walked with Christ since his childhood and brings more than three decades of leadership experience in a Fortune 250 firm, in the nonprofit sphere, and as a naval officer. At the pinnacle of his business career with Altel, he led more than 1,000 employees with annual P&L responsibility exceeding $1.5 billion. He considers his role at CCA as the magnum opus of his life and is energized by their quest to see 6,000 people a year come to Christ through their chaplains, building caring relationships in the workplace. Larry Griffith, welcome into the corner office. Well, Brad, thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And as we record this, we're about uh, 11, 12 weeks into uh, sheltering in place, as so many of Americans are, and those that are, I'm sure, listening uh, to the podcast now. Uh, how are you doing? How's your family? And how has this time been for you? Well, my family is doing great, and I, I hope likewise yours is as well. Yeah, it's been interesting times. We were chatting a little bit about it, uh, not having a haircut for a long period of time, uh, you know, cooking your own food. Uh. <laughs> I've been to a restaurant in weeks, but, you know, I think we'll always look back at this and, and hopefully always find the silver lining, won't we? Absolutely. And I think from an organizational perspective, I have been just so proud of the team. I, mm. I think in times like this, you you learn what people are made of. And I believe- That's true. Across the organization, people are probably working harder than they ever have. As uh, and we're talking, I'm sure more about uh, fit and uh, how folks fit into culture. But it's just been a been a beautiful thing to sit back and watch uh, people uh, doing their work with excellence. That's excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the Corporate Chaplains of America. We know that you're CEO there today. But let's start a little bit about your early years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like, Larry. Well, Brent, I was born in Western Pennsylvania, in the greater okay. Pittsburgh area, oh, yeah. uh, really at the very beginnings of the Rust Belt era. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and, and I tell you, amidst that kind of uh, economic decline, I was so blessed and loved. I, I just had so many gifts. I think I grew up in a home with, with incredible faith, uh, with an amazing mm. work ethic, and where I, in the midst of all that, was really taught just to enjoy life. What did mom and dad do? So, so my mother was a stay-at-home mom and okay. uh, worked, worked very hard. And my father, uh, most of my childhood, actually, I uh, was a truck driver. He come, came home every evening. 
And then he moved from that into being a mechanic. And uh, I was just a very diligent, hard worker. Blue, blue collar, uh, blue collar, uh, middle, middle uh, income upbringing, it sounds like. Brothers and sisters, uh, how many siblings? Uh, I have one brother, uh, six okay. years older, so I'm the baby of the family. All right. All right. Cool. What about influencers in your life? And uh, maybe let's start with mom and dad. Some of the early lessons you've learned, it sounded like hard work was probably one of them. Mom obviously loved you a lot, have that ability to live at home. What were some of the other things you remember from those early years about mom and dad? Yeah, I just thinking about my past and influencers, I, I think that my mom and dad stand out uh, considerably compared to everyone else. You know, my mm. mother, uh, just an extremely positive person to this day. She's actually going to turn 90 years of age oh my uh, gosh. this year. Congratulations. That's and awesome. She she has been my resident cheerleader. I think, you yeah. know, the love language, words of affirmation. Mm. Uh, she always believed in me uh, from a young age. And, and actually, she's lived under our roof for the past 11 years after, oh, my, dad, oh, after nice. my dad passed away. So we yeah. have a resident uh, uh, positive word of affirmation, kind of a prayer <laughs> warrior. My father, I, I think, yeah. I think with him, just an incredible hard worker, very dependable, mm. uh, very solid, and, and really learned a lot. I think a lot about excellence, about doing things right. What were some of those examples? Do you remember the examples of excellence? Things that you either observed or things that he said? Absolutely. I, I think it could be, you know, in 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 faith. Uh, my father felt led to start a bus ministry at our church, and he went oh. out. Uh, I remember going out buying. With him as he was uh, acquiring two old used school buses and the way that he <laughs> fixed them up and painted them and they just looked incredible and then trained other men to be able to drive the buses. So I think just seeing that as well wow. as uh, he actually built two boats. Uh, the second boat was a cabin cruiser uh, that we could actually sleep on. He built them from scratch. Yeah. So he could just do amazing things. And whether it yeah. was for, for ministry, whether it was for pleasure. Uh, things were just done really well. That's great. Were you a good student in school? I was. I was a, I was a good elementary school student, but I think I really yeah. blossomed once I got into seventh grade and beyond. Right. Any other activities involved in sports, music, theater, debate? Well, it's it, you know, growing up, uh, I grew up in one home for 19 years, and that's important, wow. Brant, when we talk yeah. about the, the the later part of my story. But we had mm. several acres, uh, lots of wood. So I grew up playing in nice. the woods, playing in fields, a lot of uh, neighborhood football games, baseball games. Uh, so that was a lot of the childhood. Kind of a rural community then, was it? More, more it rural was. Than, than urban? It yeah. was. Yeah. The address was uh, RD3. <laughs> all right. All right. I love it. I love it. Any, um, you know, specific teachers or mentors or pastors, other people that, you know, had uh, inspired you uh, during those early years? Yeah, there was a gentleman actually was a was a high school uh, principal. He was in mm -hmm. our church. His name was Leigh Fitch. And he took me to my first uh, Pittsburgh Pirates baseball game in 1975. And that really nice. was a great nice. impact and a, a <laughs> lot of a lot of great years for the Pirates back in the 1970s. I can imagine. Wow. That must have been a memorable experience. That's cool. What about entrepreneurial things? Were you involved in some of that? Um, you know, the ubiquitous paper route or other types of things when you were growing up or because of your rural setting, maybe not so much. Kind of hard to sell lemonade on a stand when you've got maybe one or two cars that come by a day, right? That's true. But still trying to do that. I, I remember as a kid actually trying to trying to make greeting cards and then selling uh -huh. them to the poor neighbors who probably felt obliged to buy it in hindsight. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, obviously, always any time to to try to 
uh, do something that that could that could earn a few dollars uh, was a, was a lot of fun. That's great. What were some of the earliest jobs that you had? Did you work during high school and then into college? I did. So my first job would be uh, very similar to the Disney Pixar movie Ratatouille. If you remember oh, the character yeah. uh, Linguini, the garbage <laughs> boy, that was <laughs> my first job as a dishwasher and taking out the trash and. And uh, really learned a lot with a with a rather mean chef, similar to the movie. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's and great! Went from that to bagging groceries and yeah, stacking yeah. shelves, and ultimately worked at an ice cream factory, a Borden's ice cream factory. Oh, that was wow. a cool. that was a great summer job, and yeah, uh, and even some some telemarketing. Were, was there specific uh, savings goals? In other words, was it pretty clear if you went to college, you'd had to put the money aside? Or did you have certain vices you uh, spent your extra money on? Tell us about what you did dur- during those high school years for fun. You know, I, you know, I mentioned growing up in the um, beginnings of the Rust Belt. And, and with yeah. that, unfortunately, my, my father uh, would, bit, would get laid off as different factories and plants mm. were shutting down, how that impacted the the ecosystem of the area. Sure. And so I would see my brother who was six years older than me. He would go to work, he would come home and they would hand the paycheck to my father. Yeah. And yeah. so that kind of set the that pace was the model. Uh, for yeah. me. Absolutely. What we could, whatever we yeah. could do to help. And, but really never mm. thinking of that as sacrificial, just thinking part of that as family and right. really never looking back at it, never really thought I, I needed anything or wanted everything and was quite happy. Now you went on to college, Geneva College, which which comes back up again in your career. We'll get to that in a minute, and then on to your MBA a few years later. What was it a foregone conclusion that you'd go to college growing up? Did mom and dad want that for you? Well, I I think so. You know, as a National Honor Society member, as a ah, uh, junior high school and high school member, yeah. thank you, and uh, and I really enjoyed school. But I'm the not only first generation college; I'm actually the first person in our family to have a bachelor's degree. So. So your brother unsure. didn't go to school, it sounds like. Right? Uh, he, he did for a while, and yeah. then he had to kind of come out as he had to work, and then he finished up later in life. But yeah. uh, Got it. So Got it. so I was kind of a groundbreaker going to a, a residential four-year school. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was a great experience. How did you pick Geneva College? I've heard a lot of good things about that over the years. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I uh, Originally, I was going to go to the University of Pittsburgh, and I was a big uh, sure. Pitt Panther fan, Tony Dorsett, and right, Dan Marino, right. and all of that. <laughs> and uh, God really got a hold of my life as a as a mm. high school student through the music of Keith Green, uh, oh. who uh, who you may or may not know, but it, I, I encourage your listeners if you Google him, just some really some really just fascinating lyrics. And so, so in that time, God made it really clear to me that just in my heart that I should go to Geneva College. It didn't apply anywhere else, and uh, that's where I wound up going to school, about forty five minutes from where I grew up. That's great. Now you you grew up in a Christian home. It sounds like. Did, when did I you did. actually accept uh, Christ as your as your savior? So I accepted Christ in December of seventy one. I was okay. uh, just just turned eight years age of, of age, and wow. and it really became clear to me at that young age that <clears throat> that I needed a, a a savior in my life, and I began mm-hmm. a journey with Christ that uh, uh, that continues to this day. Oh, that's awesome. Terrific. And uh, family, uh, were you church going, you know, folks and very involved in that part of your upbringing as well? Did that have a major impact on your uh, on your early days? It sure did. About six yeah. years before I was born, when my mother was pregnant with my brother, uh, they, they had friends encouraging them to go to church. And mm. it's, my parents heard the gospel for the first time in their living room. Uh, they accepted Christ together. Wow, that's great. And, and that so was prior I, to your brother being born. Absolutely. So when I came along, we were 
we were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday <laughs> night. Uh, the trajectory of our family had completely changed. As well established. Great. Now, is it, Geneva, uh, is that in Virginia? I'm trying to think of the location. So was that in the same state or did you go out of state? So it's in states in That's Beaver Falls, yeah. Pennsylvania. It's a, yeah. a Christian four-year liberal arts uh, college and uh, really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, awesome. And you went had to study business. Tell us a little bit about how you selected the major and, and you know, what made you decide to kind of go down that path? What's well, interesting, actually, my uh, undergraduate degree was in communications uh, with a double minor in history and political science. So okay. I, uh, I picked the minors up just from classes I enjoyed taking. And, uh, and really, I was thinking at the time, I probably wanted to go into journalism or maybe even broadcasting. In fact, one of the jobs I had in college was was the Pirate Minute. So I got to go <laughs> to Three River Stadium, interview members of the Pittsburgh Pirates and other teams, people like Pete Rose and Nolan Ryan and Ozzie Smith and sit in the press box. And uh, those were some some great years. But uh, uh, that was what I originally thought I would do with my life yeah. and God had some other plans in mind. <laughs> it's amazing how that plays out. Well, you, I know you spent six years in the Navy. Thank you for your service. Was that before Geneva College or after? Where did that kind of fit in in your educational development? It was after. And so so during okay. my time at Geneva, my last two years, uh, I actually was able to serve as junior and senior class president. And, yeah. and, and, and while I did that, I discovered I really enjoyed leadership and and that's what kind of led me after graduation to kind of look at different options. And uh, I actually went through officer candidate school, which is similar to the movie Officer and a Gentleman, oh, gosh. Uh, but, but with none of the beautiful women. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, were you NR2, NROTC or, or? I was not, so, not. Uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, which I, I would highly advise as a way to avoid college debt. But, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I, I went through OCS at, uh, for four months and then yeah. uh, went to Navy Supply Corps School in Athens, Georgia for six months. And received my commission and, and served four years on ships and, and two years wow. on shore duty. So that was really your first job out of college. It was, it yeah, was. And I, yeah. and I tell you, the leadership training that I received as a young junior officer, just, can you imagine, Brant, as a 23-year-old, I'm, I'm responsible for two dozen people. Yeah I, yeah. I could write a U.S. Treasury check in 1986 for $100 million. Oh, my gosh. And I would, I would go to the bank with a couple of <laughs> Marines, with, M, with, with M16s, and I would pick up $6 million in cash and a couple briefcases and go back to the ship. Can you imagine that? Oh my that? gosh, that's wild. So you were, you were literally in charge of treasury on the ship? Was that the job or I what was, was your it, role? It was an air, my, my first job was a dispersing officer on an aircraft carrier, which is a floating city. And so not only you know, wow. the, keeping the pay records for all of the sailors, but at the same time, you know, as we would go on a med cruise and, and around the world, you know, paying, yeah. dealing with foreign governments, uh, paying all of our bills for 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 good safe harbor, as well as uh, back when there were a lot of different currencies before the euro, sure. uh, just all yeah. of the conversions, and so Every it was a, a great call. a great yeah. way to start. Wow, oh, that's fantastic! And and really started managing people from day one. It sounds like it did, and being on two yeah. different ships and kind of managing four different divisions, just like leading different different people doing different things, uh, and just learning a lot on the job with a senior. Uh, chief petty officer uh, there to kind of be by my side, somebody who had been leading people as a senior enlisted person for two decades. Wow. Kind of a, was he a, your was, direct was great... boss? Is that kind of the, 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 the pecking order, so to speak? 
So that's the strange thing out. about the military. So you get these ju- these young junior military officers, and and these senior enlisted folks report to you. Oh my gosh! And so, really? And so wow. they come alongside <laughs> you, and they're saluting. But they're if they're really good, which I was so blessed with the folks I had, they're kind of. They report to me, but I'm also, if I'm wise, I'm going to learn from them. <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and, and that forged quite a bit as I, I began kind of a, a leadership journey. What were some of those leadership lessons during the six years in the military? I think really, I think really seeing the, the importance of being a learner yeah. and, and not being arrogant. And, and I, mm. you know, in the, in the Navy, because particularly when you're on a ship, there, there's a lot of, uh, of segmentation there there's parts of the ship that are that are even on the hatches it'll be painted officer country and so enlisted people are only allowed in those areas if they're serving wow and that really over you know within the first few months that really began to disturb me because huh. i saw that these enlisted folks they they were the they were the backbone of all we did and i mentioned the the senior enlisted folks as a young junior military officer they were the ones who brought all this experience yeah. Uh, and ability, and and uh, they were just a kind of a different class, and I and I think uh, that's where the seeds were planted uh, for me for for servant leadership. How was and I was going to say, yeah, how did that kind of play? How did your faith play out during the military years? Was that a challenge? Uh, was there a good group of you know other Christian men that you were able to um, assimilate and and you know uh, work with, or or was that something that was kind of you know more in the closet during those years? So I, I think one of the things growing up in a strong Christian home in Western Pennsylvania, outside of the Bible Belt, uh, I learned at a at a young age uh, to uh, to really lean into my faith. Mm. And I would view heroes, people like Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more commonly <laughs> known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right. And so somewhat growing up in in Babylon, but just being. Uh, but just having courage to be who yeah. I was in Christ, and and so going into the Navy. Uh, I would, uh, I just, I just leaned into that, and uh, and certainly there was a level of ridicule, but just just remembering the words of Jesus that when people when people abuse you, uh, that that's something that you should celebrate uh, because that's what they did yeah. to him, and and uh, so shining the light, but in in a way that you hope it will be attractive. So, so Brad, from my very early days, uh, just leading voluntary Bible studies uh, with the men in my division, mm. and uh, I think one of the coolest stories in my very first job. So you can imagine doing pay records for several thousand sailors and there would be a lot of issues and mistakes made and uh, a lot of uh, sailor talking. You've all heard right. somebody say you cuss right. like a sailor. And so, <laughs> and so I told my men, I said, we're going we're gonna to be professionals and we're not going to use profanity. Well, mm. holy smokes, that was difficult. And for some of those guys, <laughs> I bet, I bet. and I said, uh, what you do on duty. And I see you guys are all intelligent. You know, you can, you can articulate your thoughts without using profanity. And when I went to the next division, uh, when I left that, as they kind of rotate you in the Navy, uh, Petty Officer Yost, I never forget from mm. downtown Philadelphia, uh, he started tearing up and he just talked about how it made such a difference in his life, just yeah. teaching him to be a young man. So I think living out faith and, uh, yeah. and just showing people really how to be good, young, professional adults. I was significant uh, during those 
all six years in the Navy. That's awesome. And then you went on to a, a stellar career, 17 years with Altel. I, I know Altel in a previous life. I was um, a VP of international and CMO of a telecommunications company. And Altel is a, was a very successful regional provider, uh, mostly in the South, right? South, Southeast, uh, before being purchased by Verizon. But you were there a, a good number of years. Did they recruit out of the, the military? Is that how you got connected to them? They did. There was a junior mm. military officer recruiter out of Atlanta. He ha ha actually happened to be a supply corps officer as well, the yeah. leader of the firm. And um, we connected and um, I had a couple interviews, a couple offers, and decided to go with, with Altel right at the very beginning of cellular. I didn't have a cellular phone yeah. myself. And, yeah. and so that was a, a wild and crazy ride yeah. as uh, cell phones went from for the wealthy uh, to being... Um, Extremely common. Common. Place. Yeah. Great. Well, a good long career, and I'm sure um, lots of different positions there, ending up as, as area president of the South region. H how big was your organization there when you um, actually finally left Altel at the, at the Verizon acquisition? Well, like you mentioned in the intro, uh, we had uh, a $1.5 billion PL in, wow. in revenue. And uh, our states were Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, Louisiana and Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was just an incredible ride. You know, if you remember, I was born and raised in one home uh, for the first 19 years of my yeah. life. Yeah. And then in 17 years with Altel, we moved nine times. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Talk about the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, God tests us. How did you do with that? Uh, yeah, You were married by that time, I presume. That's right. As, we, as I was leaving sea uh, uh, duty to go to shore duty, I, I got married. Uh, Kim and I, and we actually 30 years ago last month. And uh, these moves, a lot of them were without children, which was much easier. And then some were with children and the younger, uh, the easier that was. But but it, it was incredible. I think, you know, starting out doing finance and then moving to do sales management, moving again to do marketing, moving up the ranks and actually uh, having the opportunity to be the VP of marketing where we put our name on the Jacksonville Jaguars stadium there and mm. uh, which was really a cool experience. And then moving again for general management, have, owning the PL, moving to corporate from, 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 from staff to line positions right. and ultimately landing uh, in the Southeast with uh, the area president role. I think all of those jobs built on each other. And I think the movement you got to see, different people and again continuing to be a lifelong learner and trying to take the best uh from from the good people that you have the, the chance to work for and around you know we've all had mentors um in our life and in our work i, I worked for two great companies procter and gamble and disney but i've also had a few tormentors along the way <laughs> and i'm sure you've had opportunities as well to learn from others, perhaps by their mistakes or by their behavior, without mentioning any names. Do you remember back, particularly during the Altel days, when you might have seen something, what, wow, yeah, I think I'll do things a little bit differently than that. And and if so, what was that? And, and how did you kind of maybe pivot your management style based on the observance of others? Yeah, I think with leadership, I think there's two paths that people lead. Uh, and, and I think one is a building authority with people or influence, and the other is exercising power over them. Mm, yeah. And uh, I think I saw a few people, not many, I think also <laughs> had an incredible culture that they were just, they were going to exercise their power in an yeah. autocratic way. And, uh, and that could include, whether it be public humiliation, I think the, the more consistent theme might be 
I'm going to build myself up perhaps by putting others down. Yeah. But again, I was, yeah. I was, I was just so fortunate. I'd say a vast majority of the leaders were not that way. In fact, they, they saw the importance to build others up and, uh, and to grow the organization that way. That's awesome. Yeah. That's good to hear. So, um, was your MBA then, uh, achieved during your Altel years or was that following that? Tell us where, uh, you went back to is actually West Virginia, right? To John Chambers, uh, college. When, w- tell me a little bit about when that happened. I did I actually started the MBA, uh, when I was, uh, with, with Altel, okay. uh, through Georgia Southern university. And then with all Georgia of Southern. these moves yeah. and, and all of these changes, I had to put that on hold. And then I was able to finish the MBA. Actually, when I went to Geneva College, one of the questions they asked is, um, you know, would I be willing to get a graduate degree? And I said, I certainly would. So I, I finished that up at WVU. So that was a real interesting pivot, right? Because you went back to Geneva College, a place where you got your bachelor's, and you became their chief operating officer. Um, not particularly a predictable path um, with regards to, you know, a senior and very successful telecom executive. Tell us a little bit about the thought process that went into you joining a nonprofit and in, 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 into the education sector. Well, we were really blessed at, at Altel with all of those moves and, and upward mobility. And uh, we actually went private in the largest private equity deal uh, still yeah. in American history in telecom. And uh, and then, unfortunately, the subprime mortgage crisis hit, and uh, our right. partners, yeah. TPG and Goldman Sachs, had to, uh, they were looking for liquidity. Verizon came along after they held the asset just for a matter of months, acquired it. And so I was in the, the top few dozen folks uh, as a as a technical uh, cor- corporate officer, not, not a top six. Right. Uh, and so going private uh, and then having that event were kind of two great events for us uh, uh, and, and really opened up opportunities for us to really think about what we wanted yeah. to do next. And, and I love, I bleed black and gold brand. I'm a huge <laughs> uh, Steelers, Penguins, uh, Pirates fan. And, had, <laughs> uh, and so there was an opportunity to go home and I love Geneva. I, I love my education there. Yeah. And uh, I'd become a donor over the years. And the president okay. you stayed uh, asked close. me. Mm-hmm. I did. I stayed close. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and uh, and so I, I went back and it was a it was it was very different, but it was a great opportunity to really learn the nonprofit world, which God yeah. had my present role in mind at the time. I did not know that, but it was a, a great opportunity. That's awesome. And and uh, so how was that? that pivot into the nonprofit world? Did you find that you had to modify your leadership, um, you know, approach where there were there major changes that you made kind of tell us a little bit about that transition. Well, I, f- I found that, you know, servant leadership, which is really what I uh, ascribe to it. Mm. It's uh, I, I think it fits uh, every category, every organization. And, uh, right. and so I, I really took all the things that I had learned through my time at Altel. Uh, and just applied them at Geneva. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And you were there a good eight years, so you did two more terms as a bachelor's undergrad, right? <laughs> you did your first and That's four right. years, that <laughs> two additional eight years. What what uh, you know led you to finally uh, shift to your current responsibility as as CEO of Corporate Chaplains? And yeah, tell us a little bit about that journey. I actually received a, a call from a recruiter. Okay. Uh, about an opportunity and. Uh, it really sounded intriguing. Well, and again, I, I, you know, Geneva is such an incredible organization. It's been around since 1848 and uh, with a great mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but just seeing there was an opportunity to, to kind of get back into business, you know, uh, the uh, 
the world of the academy is a bit different and <laughs> right, uh, I, right. and i love i love change and and i love adaptation and uh, the opportunity to kind of get back into a, a, a business a more pure business role but not yeah. leave ministry behind and so if you picture a venn diagram that that overlap between business and ministry uh corporate chaplains just seem to be a perfect fit in that regard Tell us a little bit about corporate chaplains, those of us that perhaps are not familiar with uh, what corporate chaplains do today. Well, corporate chaplains has been around going on 25 years, mm. and uh, we serve uh, public and private companies as large as 17,000 employees and as small as a dozen employees. And wow. so uh, it's just an amazing opportunity to kind of come alongside and offer an employee benefit for the minds and hearts. Uh, of employees and their family members, even their extended family members and friends, and uh, and just see uh, a way to kind of augment culture efforts companies have. And so there's a mm. huge business opportunity, uh, particularly in an era when when millennials and Gen Z care more than ever about culture and community mm. in the workplace. Yeah. And how many employees in total, uh, full-time and volunteers? So uh, we would have 280 uh, full-time employees, wow. and a vast majority of those would be chaplains. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And you cover national, international? What's your scope? We do. We're, we're across the United States mm. uh, in Canada, and uh, we do also have a presence in South America. And um, it's, uh, it's been great. Uh, it's just been a great opportunity. That's terrific. Well, we met through C12. Uh, for those of you that are listening, C12 is a peer advisory group of, of faith-based business owners, as well as uh, managed companies. Of course, uh, Corporate Chaplains is right in the target zone there. And you've been involved about the same amount of time since you've been at, at Corporate Chaplains. Is that correct? When, when did you actually come into C12? I have. I joined uh, as we relocated to uh, a Research Triangle here in North Carolina. Right, right. And uh, I tell you what a what an incredible experience as a first time CEO of an organization. Uh, just the power of being at, at a table with owners of businesses and mm. other CEOs, the shared wisdom and and uh, the chairs, the people that lead uh, uh, the C twelve groups. Just their amazing background and their experience they bring to the table. Uh, it's just it's just been an incredible uh, benefit to me, and, and it's been invaluable. Awesome. Do you feel that in your current role, you're able to, you know, kind of live your faith more fully in work or, or does it feel the same as it was when you were at Geneva or at Alta or the military for that matter? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the notion of a, a secular sacred divide is, um, is a fantasy mm-hmm, in that, mm-hmm. uh, that you, people bring their whole selves to work That's regardless right. of what their worldview or their mind is. And, and so if I look back at a young man uh, in the military uh, to an older man who's now at corporate chaplains, I think living out my faith is just a natural thing because ultimately it's just being who I am. Well, corporate culture is a very important part of any organization, nonprofit or otherwise. And as you mentioned, uh, corporate chaplains have been around over 20 years, 25 years, you said? That's right, going on and, 25. Yeah, so you're not the first CEO and you won't be the last. Um, h- how do you think about culture? How do you communicate that? And you know, how does that work within the corporate chaplains organization? Yeah, I think uh, culture is so vital mm. because you know people uh, are not your greatest resource in my mind. People are your company and they're That's your right. re- organization. And, and so that culture becomes the frame of reference uh, that ultimately people want want to be part of or they don't want to be part of. And so 
I, I think, Brad, I've thought of it in, in four ways. I, I think it starts with the mission. And uh, as I specifically about corporate chaplains of America, our mission statement, which is to build caring relationships with the hope of gaining permission to share the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ in a non-threatening manner. Mm. So, so the really cool thing is that mission statement was so deliberately chosen by our founder, Dr. Mark Kress, and every person in the organization like knows it by heart, which which is the first time in my life I've seen that, where, where you know people wouldn't have to look at a uh, it's something framed on a wall or paraphrase right. it, but they know right. it verbatim because mm. I, I think it helps us cherish our past heritage. And it really kind of locks in, uh, really the what, what the, the what that we do. It's so, it's so vital. So I think culture starts with mission, which then goes to vision, which is the you know where are we going? And that's really a, yeah. a key role that I play with with our board mm. uh, to frame up the vision. Uh, and then I think with that comes strategy, which is how are we going to go from where we've Make been, where we are, to, to yeah. where we're headed? And uh, uh, we have a strategic plan. We uh, we use the two-page strategic plan that uh, so many folks in C12 uh, love right, to use, right? And and that's so powerful. And then ultimately, so so we know we we know you know what we do. Uh, we know where we're going. Uh, we know how we're going to get there through our, our our strategy. But at the end of the day, who are we? And that's right. our values. So yeah. I, I think when when we link those things together, mission, vision, strategy, and values, it really creates a co- cohesive. A strong culture that you can build on. Absolutely. What, what do you look for when you're hiring people and, you know, looking to invest in them and joining your organization? Well, something, and I've really enjoyed your podcast, by the way. And so well, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've heard several folks invoke Patrick Lincioni. I, I, and as you know, <laughs> yes. as a C12 member, we talk a lot about humble, hungry, and smart. That's right. Uh, fr- That's from right. the ideal team player. But I'd like to maybe use my Pittsburgh roots to talk about that in a slightly different way. Mm, please. Uh, so the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin, and their uh, general manager, Kevin Colbert, when, when you come into the NFL draft season, they always say they're looking for smarts and hearts. Mm. And, and I think that similar to Humble, Hungry, and Smart, when you think about people that have the right heart, and, and it's something that can't necessarily be taught. What, what, are they, what are folks bringing to the table? Do they resonate with your mission, with your mission, your vision, your values? Yeah. Uh, are, they, are they really going to fit in to the organization? And then ultimately, what are their smarts? And I, I love to think about uh, the, the GE McKenzie nine box talent model. Where, where mm. do they fit as far as potential? And then as they come on the team, how do they fit in performance and trying to move people uh, up and up and out uh, across those nine boxes. Yeah, yeah, awesome. You know, um, <laughs> we're going through a very interesting time, and there's lots of speculation about what the world's going to look like post COVID. Everything from everything's going to be the same. You know, it's just going to go back. We're just kind of being, you know, we're we're hibernating for a bit, and you know, we'll go back out there, and things will be just fine. Um, to you know, a very different world, not dissimilar to nine eleven, but uh, not only impacting travel, but you know, eating at restaurants, shopping in stores, etc. Tell us a little bit about you know what kind of changes do you see ahead, specifically as it relates to corporate chaplains. You know, the work you do and the connection that you make is so personal. Um, and you know, ha- how has how has it been going? 
selling during this time? Because certainly, if anything, I would think the need's been spiking, right, with regards to workers who are worried or fearful. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they're sick themselves. And and what do you see kind of happening as we uh, you know go through this crisis and come out the other side? Well, that's a great question. It's been it's been fascinating to sit back and watch. I would say. Hmm. Uh, you know, our ministry typically happens through a, a chaplain physically going right. to a location and yeah. seeing employees face to face. And surprisingly, there's still a good number of the companies that we serve where we can still do that. Even, even during the, the crisis. Mm-hmm. Even during the crisis. But we've obviously had more and more. Face masks. <laughs> you know, people have, or, or, yeah. or people have gone virtual. They've been working from home. Right. And, and in some cases, even even laid off. So what we've seen is continuing to care for those people uh, physically, but oftentimes now more and more virtually, and even caring for those that no longer work at those companies mm. as an extension mm. of the owner's heart, because as they've had to furlough and lay off, I know it's just breaking the heart. So I yeah. speak to so many of our owners and they, they love as they're, as they're telling their employees, we're sorry for this furlough. We're sorry for these difficult times. But don't forget your chaplain. So, so us right. leaning into those folks and caring for them. But you know, we've served uh, employees increasingly over the years that are part of a distributed workforce because it's this right. is not new with a pandemic. Sure, yeah. And so, so we've had some people within the organization that are just exceptional uh, at chaplaining uh, through uh, virtual means, and so we've mm. really been able to uh, take their best practices and kind of embed that into our training curriculum. We have an incredible uh, leader over all of our training initiatives, a West Point grad. I don't hold the army against him, <laughs> but, uh, but he basically has taken, uh, taken that and, and tried to equip all of our chaplains, perhaps those that are, are more exclusively in a physical setting and equip them. And as we think about life post pandemic, we think it will not ever go back to exactly the way it was. So, right. so just how do we, how do we make sure that we're ready to to not view virtual care as anomalous, but rather mm. as part of the new normal. And yeah, uh, so we're right. working on a lot of rapid prototyping in that regard. And mm. I'm just trying to care for people as we think about the future, Zen, Gen Z and right, and, and even right. what, what, what Gen Alpha will look like uh, <laughs> uh, 10 to 15 years from now. Well, Larry, thank you so much. We're just about out of time, but we always ask one final question, as you know, from listening to the podcast. And, you know, that's kind of what career and life advice you'd give to someone, particularly someone who maybe have a similar interest to yours, you know, has worked maybe half his life or her life in the public sector, uh, sorry, in the private sector. And then, you know, kind of takes a look at life and says, boy, I, you know, I'd love to really take a look and, you know, maybe financially in a place where they can do so and and work in the public sector. Tell us a little bit about someone who might have that as an interest in their longer term career what would you what would you say to them well i have taken uh, quite a bit of inspiration from a 1980s academy award winning film chariots of fire oh yes <laughs> and in that movie there there's these two olympic heroes on two different paths and one of them is eric little and yeah. his sister is trying to convince him to go to china to join the family in their mission work and he says to her God made me fast, and when mm. I run, I feel his pleasure. So I would encourage your listeners to, to just recognize the fact that each of us have a creator. We're not yeah. a cosmic accident. And so as we have a creator, really trying to get to know our creator and trying to discover how was I created? What was mm. I created for? Because when we can discover that, what I was created for, 
we're going to find, like Eric Little did, that when he ran, he felt his pleasure. When we lean into what we were created to do, we will find joy in work. Mm-hmm. And it will no longer be about accumulating wealth to accumulate toys and things, but rather it'll be about doing what you are meant to do. And I think for me, that's just been, I think that's been the secret to life. Mm. And I think living with my creator and, and, and doing those good works that he prepared in advance for me to do and suddenly work, well, well time's challenging, no, no doubt about that. But overall, work can become more fun. And I think coming full circle back to my father, who worked hard with excellence, but he enjoyed life. I think that's the secret he unlocked in his walk with Christ. Fantastic, Larry. Well, Larry Griffith, CEO at Corporate Chaplains of America, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 